Welcome to SCOTUS Blog Media. Today is Monday, June 24th, 2013. The Supreme Court issued five decisions today and granted nine more cases for argument next term. We'd like to share with you some of the highlights from today's action. First, we finally got a decision in Fisher, or the affirmative action case. And for more information on that, we'll turn to SCOTUS Blog's Amy Howe. After more than eight months of waiting, today the Supreme Court issued its decision in Fisher versus University of Texas at Austin. The challenge to the university's consideration of race in its undergraduate admissions process. And despite all of the waiting, the opinion turned out to be more of a fizzle than an explosion, which interestingly resulted in both sides claiming victory. The University of Texas admits students to its freshman class in two ways. The first method, known as the top 10% plan, is not at issue in this case. It is straightforward. If you are in the top 10% of your high school class in Texas, you are admitted to the University of Texas. The university fills the remaining slots using a holistic review process that looks at things like grades, life experiences, and test scores. Since 2003, when the Supreme Court, in a case called Grutter v. Bollinger, held that the University of Michigan Law School could consider race as one factor in its efforts to create a diverse student body, University of Texas at Austin has also considered race as part of its holistic review of applications. The plaintiff in this case is a white student named Abigail Fisher, who filed a lawsuit alleging that she had been the victim of racial discrimination because minority students with less impressive credentials than hers had been admitted using the holistic review process. The lower courts ruled in favor of the university, but today, by a vote of 7-1 to one, with Justice Elena Kagan recused, the Supreme Court sent the case back to the lower court for it to take another more exacting look at the case. The court reiterated that the standard that the lower court should apply is strict scrutiny, which requires that classifications based on race be narrowly tailored to further a compelling government interest. And although the Supreme Court was willing to defer to the university's conclusion that a diverse student body would serve its educational goals, it emphasized that no such deference would be accorded to the university's determination that the methods it had chosen to achieve a diverse student body were narrowly tailored to serve that goal. Instead, the court explained, the reviewing court must confirm that it is necessary for the school to use race. So the university's policy survives, but it remains to be seen whether it can meet the court's high bar. For details on an important duo of today's decisions, we'll go over to Kevin Russell. Today, the Supreme Court handed employers victories in two important discrimination cases. In the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center versus Nassar, the plaintiff claimed that he was denied a permanent job at a medical center after complaining about discrimination by his supervisor. Today, the Supreme Court, in a 5-4 to four decision by Justice Kennedy, ruled that in order to prevail in a claim like that, it's not enough for the worker to show that retaliation was one of several motivating factors in the employment decision. Instead, he must show what is called but-for causation. That is, but-for the retaliatory intent he would have gotten the job. Under that rule, so long as the employer would have reached the same result for legitimate reasons, there's no liability. The court acknowledged that in 1991, Congress enacted a statute adopting the plaintiff's motivating factor standard for claims of race, sex, religion, and national origin discrimination. But it concluded that retaliation is different, and because it wasn't listed in the 1991 amendment, it wasn't subject to that lesser standard of proof. The justices in the majority were Justice Kennedy and the Chief Justice, and Justices Scalia, Thomas, and Alito. 
Justice Ginsburg wrote a dissent just joined by Justices Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan. That was the same lineup in the second case, Vance versus Ball State and University. That case involved the question of who counts as a worker supervisor. The question matters because the Supreme Court has adopted different standards for holding a company liable for discrimination by supervisors, which is easier for a plaintiff to prove, versus discrimination by coworkers, which is harder. This time, Justice Alito wrote the opinion for the conservative majority. They decided that for purposes of this rule, someone is a supervisor only if he has the power to take what the court called tangible employment actions. That means the power to hire, fire, demote, and the like. Simply having the authority to tell a worker what to do during the workday isn't enough. This has the benefit of being a simple, easy-to-apply rule, and anyone who is not a supervisor is still considered a co-worker, so a plaintiff can still try to prove liability under the co-worker liability rule, although it is, of course, harder. In both cases, Justice Ginsburg wrote the dissents, which were impassioned, and accused the majority of not understanding the day-to-day realities of people subject to discrimination. Take, for example, she said, a person who is sexually harassed by the person who gives her day-to-day work assignments. Even though that person cannot fire the victim, and therefore is not a supervisor under the court's new rule in Vance, he could still make her life very difficult if she objected to his sexual advances. And in Justice Ginsburg's view, when an employer gives a worker that kind of power, it should be held strictly accountable for the worker's discriminatory behavior. She therefore called upon Congress to pass new legislation to overrule both decisions. Next term, the court will hear a challenge to the president's recess appointment power. Amy Howe has details. Before issuing decisions in argued cases this morning, the Supreme Court also also issued orders from its June 20th conference. The court added nine new arguments to its merits docket for the fall, the most notable of which was National Labor Relations Board versus Noel Canning, a challenge to the president's recess appointments to the National Labor Relations Board. With gridlock in Congress, presidents of both parties have recently resorted to recess appointments to fill vacancies in government posts requiring Senate confirmation. Efforts to challenge recess appointments made by President George W. Bush were unsuccessful, but other efforts were renewed after President Obama made three recess appointments to the NLRB last year. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit ruled that the recess appointments were unconstitutional. It held that recess appointments can only be made when the Senate goes into recess at the end of a year, and even then only for vacancies that were created during the recess. The federal government filed a petition for certiorari asking the Supreme Court to review the recess appointments question, and Noel Canning, the soft drink company that won in the D.C. Circuit, agreed that search should be granted. However, Noel Canning urged the court to take up an additional question, whether the Senate can block recess appointments by reconvening every three days for perfunctory meetings. The court agreed with both sides and granted review of all three questions, setting up a major constitutional showdown that could have widespread implications, including for virtually all of the board's actions since the recess appointees took their seats. The case will be scheduled for oral argument in the fall. A decision in the case is expected by this time next year. And finally, another key case for next term will deal with protests against abortion. Here's Mike Gottlieb. So I'm working on a write-up of the court's decision to grant cert today in McCone versus Coakley, which is a case from Massachusetts that tests the permissibility of a law regarding buffer zones around reproductive health care facilities or abortion clinics. And this case is a follow-on case to one that the court heard in 2000 called Hill versus Colorado. 
and much of the dispute uh, below was whether the Massachusetts law uh, that is at issue in this case is consistent with the court's decision in Hill versus Colorado. Um, the petitioners in this case argue both that the Massachusetts law uh, is more restrictive and less consistent with the First Amendment than the law in Hill versus Colorado, and also that to the extent that the decision in Hill controls that that case should be overruled. Uh, so this uh, will be a very interesting case, could be a very important uh, First Amendment case, and uh, will be briefed over the summer and argued uh, next term. For SCOTUS Blog, I'm Dan Stein. Thanks for listening.